Spiritual Sword Media presents The Anchor of the Soul with Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ in Olive Branch, Mississippi. Fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. And now, Mike Hickson. We're going to be talking in our study this morning about the theme, Why I Believe in God. If someone were to ask you on the street, why do you believe in God? What would you say? Could you give some valid reasons for why you, as a believer, put your faith in and trust in Jehovah God? We live in a day and time in which there are a lot of people that literally wave off the existence of God. If you were to ask them, do you believe in God? They would respond emphatically, no, I do not. And then there are those who are somewhat skeptical. They have the idea, well, maybe God exists, maybe he doesn't. They would be classified as agnostic. The atheist, however, they are very bold in their declaration, there is no God. What are we called upon by Scripture to do in the face of those who might ask us what we believe, why we believe, what we claim to believe. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15 said, Sanctify the Lord God in your heart always and be ready to give an answer, a defense for the faith that we believe. What Peter is saying is that you and I, we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. And so today we want to talk for a moment or two about why I believe in God. Because I think that there are basically two very valid arguments for the existence of God. Number one, I would suggest that I believe in God because the stars declare the glory of God. And basically, that's what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 19. He is using an argument from creation. He is, he is saying that when you step outside and look at the created order, that you have before you a valid reason for putting your faith in an almighty God. And so, listen to what the psalmist said. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man, to run its race. Here the psalmist speaks of the eloquence, of the wisdom and power of God in creation. He is saying that when you and I observe the heavens, we have evidence that there is a God. There are a lot of people in our, in our society today, many very intellectual individuals, who simply do not believe in Jehovah God. 
And yet from a non-verbal vantage point, the heavens, as the psalmist said, declare the glory of God. The psalmist said in Psalm 33, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them, by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke, and it was done. In Psalm 8, at verse 3, the psalmist said, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, the psalmist there pointing out that God is the one responsible for the sun, the moon, the stars, the heavenly bodies, the solar system, the universe in which you and I live. And so, there are some things that I would call your attention to when we talk about how the stars declare the glory of God. One of the arguments that I think is a very valid argument that can be employed in our defense when we talk about why I believe in God is the argument from design. When we look at, at the universe, we see a universe of design. It's not accident. This isn't something that just happened by chance, but rather Almighty God, in His wisdom and in His power, created the world. The Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 1 that Christ was the agent by which the world was made. All things, Paul said, were created by Him in heaven and on earth, whether visible or invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions, powers or principalities, all things were created by Him and for Him and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Not only did Jesus create the world, not only is he the agent by which the world was framed, but the Bible says he upholds all things by the word of his power in Hebrews chapter 1 at verse 3. Well, what about this universe that you and I live in? Well, first of all, the psalmist speaks of the rising of the sun. In verse 6 he said, Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end. And there, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Every day the sun rises. It rises in the east. It sets in the west. And Moses said in Genesis chapter 8 at verse 22 that as long as this earth remains... There will be what? He said there will be the sun and the night. And so the psalmist is simply affirming here that this ball of fire will continue its work until the end of time. But not only do we remind ourselves of the rising of the sun, but what about the roundness of the earth? Did you know that Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 40 at verse 22 that Jehovah God sits above the circle of the earth? What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the circular sphere, this planet that we inhabit. It's called planet earth. It is round. It's spherical in shape. It's circular. Let me ask you this question. How, did, how do you think Isaiah knew that? Isaiah wrote some 700 years before Jesus came to planet earth. 
Did Isaiah, did, did he have access to a spaceship? Do you think Isaiah got, got on board a space shuttle and took off out into planet, out, out into space and looked back and saw the roundness of the earth? No, he didn't do that. Well, how then did he know that the earth was round? The only way he could have known. Because Jehovah God revealed it to him. You see, Isaiah didn't have, he didn't have access to a telescope. He didn't have access to, to a space shuttle, spaceship, nothing like that. And yet, the Bible speaks of the roundness of the earth. And then also, Job writes in Job chapter 26 at verse 7. He talks about how the earth hangs on nothing. We talk about how the stars declare the glory of God. Job, many consider Job to have been one of the patriarchs. In other words, he lived before Moses. He lived prior to the Mosaic dispensation. And yet Job, in writing, in chapter 26, verse 7, talks about how God hangs the earth on nothing. Well, how did he know that? You and I, because we've been privileged to see the work of, of those who have been out in space, we know that this, this beautiful ball, this thing that we call planet earth, literally hangs in our solar system on what? On nothing. How then did Job know that? Because God in heaven told him that. And God is the one who is able to, to hold this earth in check, in balance. The Bible says that Christ is the one who sustains it. Let the Lord walk away from the universe. Allow him to step back and just let things run on their own and see the chaos. The fact of the matter is, you and I know that we live in a universe of order, of design. And then also there is another thing that maybe we ought to talk about for just a moment. And that is the change of seasons. Again, the heavens declare the glory of God. The universe is evidence to the wisdom and power of God. They speak eloquently to God's power and to his wisdom. In Genesis 8 verse 22, again Moses said that as long as this earth remains, there will be what? Seed time and harvest. He also said that there would be what? Winter and summer. Well, what are we talking about? A change of seasons? We're about to experience a resurrection in the sense that the universe will awaken from winter. Well, who, who, in, who, in, who in their wisdom created the change of seasons? The beauty of the universe as it awakens from the winter. Well, God did. Now, I know that there are a lot of, there are a lot of, of young people that because of their exposure to public education are taught that our world happened by chance or by some cataclysmic explosion or that we are the products of evolution. 
And that if you believe in God, then you're just unenlightened. You lack an intellectual basis upon which to stand. Let me tell you what, I believe that there is more evidence for the existence of God than there is for those who propose the theory of evolution. And that's all it is. It is a theory. And because it is a theory, it will never be anything more than that. Charles Darwin has been dead a long time, and yet his theory has, has gained momentum. It's gained ground in academic circles. But the Bible stands true. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. I said a moment ago that this argument from design, the Hebrew writer points out that the argument for design is valid. In chapter 3, verse 4, he said, Every house is built by some man. Who built your home? Either you built it, you had it built, or someone else built it. Well, the Hebrew writer said, Every house is built by some man. But now listen to what he says. But he that built all things is God. God is the one who framed the universe. And so when we talk about why we ought to believe in God, well, we ought to believe in God because the stars declare the glory of God. But then secondly, the scriptures declare the glory of God. Drop down and look at verse 7. In verses 7 through 11, we have the psalmist focusing in on this book that we call the Bible. And here we're talking about revelation. And there are two ways that you and I know that there is a God, that God exists. Number one, creation. Number two, revelation. I said a moment ago that the heavens speak eloquently to the wisdom and power of God. Well, when we talk about revelation, we're talking about the holy book of God. Sixty-six books, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. We have three dispensations spoken of in the Bible. The patriarchal age, the mosaic age, and then the Christian age. We talk about those who lived under the period of the patriarchs. Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc. Under the law of Moses. Well, men like Moses. And others that followed him. Joshua, David, the prophets, etc. And then the Christian age. The law of Moses, nailed to the cross, based on Colossians 2, verse 14. The law simply pointed out transgression or sin, Galatians 3, verse 19. The purpose of the law was to point people in the direction of Christ. As a matter of fact, Paul said in Romans 10, verse 4, that Christ is the end of the law to everyone that believes. In other words, the law, the aim, the intent of the law was to point people in the direction of the Son of God, the Messiah. Well, what about revelation? What about what the psalmist says here? There are some attributes that the psalmist sets forth concerning the Word of God. Again, we ask the question, why do we believe in God? Why do I believe in God? Well, number one, because of creation. Number two, because of revelation. This holy book, 66 books, each and every book interfacing one with another. These books are inspired of God. That's what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. He said, every scripture inspired of God is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. 
that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Well, what about some of the attributes of Scripture? Number one, it is perfect. This book that we're talking about is complete. It's whole. God has no unfinished business when it comes to the completion of this book that we call the Bible. As a matter of fact, this book reveals unto us everything that we need to know about life and godliness. That's what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1 at verse 3. Everything that you and I need to know about how to live for God, about how to serve God, about how to please God, it's all right here in this book. Now again, we talk about how this book is complete, how it is whole. It's perfect. Listen to what, listen if you would to what the psalmist said, the law of the Lord is perfect. The completeness of this book. Again, Paul said, every scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for what? For doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. Everything that we need to know about the doctrine of, of Almighty God, it's in this book. Everything that we need to know about serving God, it's in this book. Everything that we need to know about worshiping God, it's in this book. Everything that we need to know about how to be saved and stay saved, it's in this book. Again, there is no unfinished business when it comes to the Word of God. That's why we are to saturate our hearts and minds with this book. That's why the psalmist spent day and night meditating on the law of the Lord, Psalm 1 at verse 2. Not only is this book said to be perfect. But the psalmist said it is powerful. Note again verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting or restoring the soul. This book that we're talking about has immense power. What kind of power are we talking about? Well, listen to what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. This book is extremely powerful. It is not just powerful, but it is penetrating. The Hebrew writer said the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Take a sword out of a sheath, and if that sword is what it ought to be, it will cut it will, it will literally lay bare a human being. Well, that's what the Word of God does. It pierces or penetrates the human heart. That's why on Pentecost Day, when we, when we read about the Apostle Peter preaching the first gospel sermon, the Bible says that in verse 36, he said, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly, that God has made the same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. Luke tells us in verse 37, when they heard this, they were pricked or cut to the heart. What happened? They heard the word of God. What did it do? It cut their heart. It cut or pricked their hearts. And thus they responded by saying, men and brethren, what shall we do? Well, that's what the word of God is intended to do. It's intended to produce a change in the lives of people. How do I know that this book can affect change in the lives of people? Well, just read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 sometime, where Paul talks about those who practice 
the works of unrighteousness. As a matter of fact, he said, no, you're not. That the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers shall inherit the kingdom of God, but such, he said, were some of you. What's Paul saying there? He's saying that here were people that were steeped in sin, but they had heard the gospel, they believed it and obeyed it, and thus change resulted. Well, that's what happens. The Word of God is not just perfect, but it's powerful. And then also, it is said to be pure. Note what is said in verse 8. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The purity of God's Word. There are a lot of things out on, on, on the market today that you and I can pick up in the marketplace, at a bookstore or whatever. And to just be very blunt and honest, the contents of what we would be reading is nothing short of trash. It's impure. But there is not anything in this book that we call the Bible that is impure. As a matter of fact, this book, if, if, if people would only read this book and live by its contents, guess what? It would elevate their way of thinking. It would elevate their practices here upon planet Earth. If, if people would put this book into practice, it would, change, it would change the course of humanity. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul talks about those things that are talks about those things that are just, honest, true, pure. He said, if there's any virtue, if there's any praise, think on these things. When you put your mind, when you, when you engage your mind in this book called the Bible, it's going to elevate your way of thinking. It's going to help you to live and to think. Pure thoughts to, to, to engage in, in behavior that is, that is of the highest character. Purity. That's what we're talking about. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Whatever we put into our, into our heart will ultimately come out. That's what Jesus said in the long ago. And so what we want to do is make sure that we are feeding and thinking on things that are pure and right and holy. And that's what the Word of God does for us. And then also, I would suggest that the Word of God, it is to be preferred. Note, if you would, what is said in verse 10. He said, God's Word is more to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. In Psalm 119, the psalmist said that he loved God's Word more than thousands of shekels of gold and silver in verse 72 of Psalm 119. In 103, in verse 103 of Psalm 119, he said that God's word is sweeter to the taste than honey. Honey was an item of luxury in ancient times. And all, all the psalmist is saying is that when it came to material things, God's word did not take a back seat to them. He was saying that God's word is to be preferred above material things. Whether it be those things that, that, that we can, can acquire by way of money or, or materialism, or those things that, 
that we taste the sweetness to the tongue or palate. And then finally, let me suggest that God's Word is said to be a pointer. That is, it points out what's right and wrong. Look at, look at verse 11. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Number one, when we talk about the Word of God and the fact that it is a pointer, it cautions and reproves. Think about the beauty of the Bible. James pictures the Bible as a mirror to the soul. He said, Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, he said, This man shall be blessed. When you and I look into, when we look into the mirror of God's word, what do we see? We see our faults, our blemishes, our mistakes, our sins. Whatever we said or done that is out of harmony with the Word of God, it's revealed to us. Well, why is it revealed unto us? So that it can caution us, so that it can reprove us, so it can help to get us back on the right track. Again, remember what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, how the Word of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. If we're doing something wrong... Thank God we have a book called the Bible that can enlighten us and tell us what to do that's right, to get us back on the right track. And the psalmist here is saying that when we look into the Word of God, it is a book that warns us, it cautions us. But then I also said, not only does it caution and reprove, but it commends and rewards. Look at the latter part of verse 11. And in keeping them, he said, there is great reward. Why do you and I try to the best of our ability to walk in compliance with this book? Well, because Jesus said, Whoever hears these sayings of his and does them will be likened unto a wise man that built his house upon the rock. He said, The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell not, for it was founded on the rock. And the point is that those who hear the sayings of Christ, those who hear the Word of God and do it, they're wise in the eyes of God. Now listen, if you would, to what John said in Revelation chapter 22 at verse 14. Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and enter through the gates into the city. John is saying there, before he closes out, the inspired Word of God, that those who hear the Word of God, who put it into practice, who live accordingly, they have the hope of heaven. They have the assurance of that beautiful home that is described by John in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. So, why do I believe in God? Number one, because the stars declare the glory of God. But number two, because the Scriptures declare the glory of God. There may be a lot of people that want to wave off this book. But I, I want to just suggest to you this, this thought. There are a lot of things that are recorded in this book that if an honest individual will take the contents of, of this book we call the Bible, read them, examine them, investigate them, they'll come to the realization that this book provides us with ample evidence that there is a God in heaven and that this God is supreme. He is sovereign. He is over all. That's what the psalmist said in Psalm 99 at verse 1. 
Well, the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to be well-pleasing to Him. You've got to have faith in the Lord before you can ever have a relationship with Him. I talked to a gentleman not long ago that told me that one of the tragedies in his life was the time he spent in Vietnam. He said, when I was in Vietnam, he said, I lost my faith, I lost my God. Thankfully, he was later, he was later able to, to correct that thinking. But there are a lot of people, there are people in this community that do not believe in God. What I'm saying is, the heavens declare the glory of God. This holy book declares the glory of God. And if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you are on the road to saving faith. What do you need to do along with belief? Well, the Bible says you have to repent. You have to turn from a life of sin. Luke chapter 13, verse 3. Then you have to confess with your mouth what you believe in your heart, that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what the eunuch did in Acts chapter 8, verse 37. The Bible says, then you are to be immersed in water so that you might enjoy salvation. Mark 16, verse 16. When you do that, the Lord will add you to His church, Acts 2, 47. You'll be numbered among the redeemed, Ephesians 5, verse 23. Thank you for listening to the Anchor of the Soul. Your speaker has been Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandage Road in Olive Branch, Mississippi. To hear this lesson again and to see video archives, go to olivebranchchurchofchrist.org. Tune in next Sunday for more of the Anchor of the Soul. Fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love.